We came to Kyoto to find new ways to bridge our differences. In doing so, however, we must not waver in our resolve. Australia will more than play its part to address climate change, but we'll do it in a practical and balanced way, in full knowledge of the economic consequences for our nation. Our efforts to protect biodiversity itself will exceed, will exceed the requirements of the treaty. Hi, welcome back to Belligan by the long 1990s. So Emma and I have promised that this instalment will be about popular culture, but we're actually going to kick it off by talking about Earth Day. Emma, tell me about Earth Day in 1990. So 1990 is an important year for Earth Day because it is actually the 20th anniversary of the first Earth Day, which was held in 1970 in the US. So it's 20 years later. Um, you know, we have it, I guess, in the in the kind of shadow of the photo of the pale blue dot at the kind of I guess it's really the peak, I think, of, of modern environmentalism. You know, Chloe, we spoke in the first instalment of this episode about all the, uh, the victories, I guess, of the environmental movement and the sense that we've kind of come to the end of history on the pale blue dot and we're going to fix the environment. You know, we finally have consensus across the world. So on Earth Day in 1990, which is in April, I had trouble getting accurate estimates, but it's it's you know, it varies from 100 to 200 million people come out across the world and, and march and kind of celebrate Earth Day. Um, it's it's really joyful. There's heaps of concerts. You know, John Denver gives a concert in a very kind of typical 1990s um, dorky environmentalism way. Um, and a, a lot of the pressure of Earth Day and the fact that, you know, so many hundreds of millions of people are out in favour of environmental action is is what leads to the kind of build-up and pressure that we see at the Rio conference two years later in 1992. So, I mean, these are huge numbers and it is, it's interesting to think about, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people who are assembled in, I guess, kind of joyful, in a, in a joyful form of activism and pressure. And we contrast that with, you know, what I have to say is the predominant, and I think this is quite right, it's not a criticism, the predominating feeling of despair and anger, which characterises climate, climate protests today. So what we're interested in today is how that was transacted through popular culture. I mean, environmentalism, it, it, went, it was mainstream by the 1990s, right? Yeah, totally. Like, that's why you have these, like, these so many millions of people who are, who are coming out and celebrating Earth Day and, and listening to John Denver. You know, it is, it's kind of, I guess it's gone mainstream. By the, by the time we hit 1990, environmentalism is everywhere. It's in, it's in music, it's in film, it's in TV. You know, to, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, all the kind of big cable networks in the US are doing special Earth Day programming um Jacques Cousteau who's you know one of my favorite environmentalists maybe that's a generous term to describe him with but anyway you know he's releasing special films his son's um giving speeches uh in in Washington I think it was so so everybody's kind of talking about it and I think like lots of of children of the 90s probably became environmentalists or became at least environmentally conscious and aware because of popular culture like I, I don't know about you Chloe but that's that's certainly true for me yeah, look, I think I think that's that's absolutely true of me and Australia certainly did make its its contribution to this 
like what what I've watched over the last week or so researching this episode, which is some you know some in, it's some shoddy production values, but some very um, committed environmental messaging in children's programming, right? Yes, that's right. Definitely some some shoddy animation. Um, my favourite of which is Dot and the Whale, which was actually released in. I th- I think it was 86 and, and combined some really terrible animation with like real livestock footage, but it was really formative for me as a, as a little girl to, to sing the song about why don't they just leave us alone? That's the whales singing, just to be clear. <laughs> um, but the other one I remember is, um, you might remember this too, Chloe, is, is Fern Gully, another terrible animation that was that was the Australian one, wasn't it? Yep, it was Australian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's it's you know set in this kind of beautiful verdant, lush forests that um, are being destroyed by by machines and a kind of um, evil spirit, I guess, that inhabits this kind of. Um, it's been confined to a tree and it's released by humans logging, and kind of unleashes all this environmental destruction. But the fairies save the day with the help of humans. Um, so. I guess I was kind of between between those shows and David Attenborough as well, who is of course producing lots of doc- documentaries at this time. I was kind of, I guess, indoctrinated into environmentalism. And there is, of course, one show that neither of us has mentioned yet, and that's I think the point we're very clearly driving at at this point, which was formative for many a '90s. TV watching child's environmental consciousness. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Captain Planet, he's a hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified, and he's fighting on the planet side. Emma, I, I'm sure you have a better memory of it than I do, so please correct me if I'm wrong in summarizing Captain Planet. But Captain Planet, it is a serialised TV show which tells the story of, I think it's five special young people. Planeteers. The Planeteers, who each represent a different geographic area in um, in on earth it's very interesting to note that while there is a a single representative for the united states of america there is also a single representative for all of africa as it's called um there's also famously linka who represents i can't remember if if the timing of it was right to call it either the either the russian federation or the soviet the ussr i think she's pretty i think she's russian i think i think she was russian um but it's about this, yeah, this global assembly of five special young people who have magic rings. And when they combine their various powers over the environment, they can create or bid or bring forth Captain Planet, who is an environmental superhero. That's about it, right? Yep. Yep. That is yep. it in a nutshell. One of the... One of the interesting things I found out about Captain Planet while researching this episode is that one of the creators was Ted Turner, who I think is an interesting figure if we want to link this back to what we were talking about in our last instalment, which is this idea of liberal environmentalism and also an environmentalism that readily reconciles itself to capital and to wealth and that doesn't ask them to change things. Because Ted Turner is the billionaire founder of CNN. He is a famous philanthropist. He was also in the early 1990s married to Jane Fonda, who I think, you know, is is one of those um rare examples of an unimpeachably good 
um, white woman who has acted consistently throughout her long career in de- as, as an activist and in defence of minority rights and radical claims, especially on the environment. In recent months, she's been, in, she's been um, arrested multiple times for her environmental protests. There were other people who were involved in the production of Captain Planet, right? Yeah, it's actually, it was really fun looking back at this because I had sort of forgotten a lot of it, but there's a, a kind of cold list of 90s celebrities. So so Whoopi Goldberg voices the character of, of Gaia, who's the kind of maternal, you know, the, the literal embodiment of, of Mother Nature. Um, Tim Curry voices the evil environment destroying robot Mal. Um, and Meg Ryan is... Dr. Blight, who's the Doc- yeah, the evil character yeah, with Dr. the Blight hair. Yeah, Dr. Blight who had, had the, the hair over yep. her eye. Yep. Yeah, and then there's kind of guest appearance as well by all kinds of people like Martin Sheen, um, Jeff Goldblum, Sting is in a few episodes. So it, it, was, it was huge, this show. Like, it had so many people. Yeah, Sting and Sting is another example of, um, of a very famous celebrity, celebrity environmentalist. Martin Sheen, I think that's a really interesting connection because, of course, and this, obviously this wasn't the case in the early 1990s, but Martin Sheen in the public mind is still very closely identified with an icon of 90s liberal liberalism, and that is President Bartlett from The West Wing. Of course, I had not even made that connection. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, it's, it's possibly a little bit of a segue, but the 90s were kind of, they were kind of a moment for celebrity environmentalism weren't they in a way that they're not so much now yeah absolutely I think you know we have this kind of call list as I said of of celebrities um voicing this uh, I guess nakedly ambitious show that's kind of indoctrinating a generation of children into environmentalism you've got Jane Fonda of course as you mentioned but also my um I guess favorite problematic extremely problematic 90s figure in Leonardo DiCaprio, who is also now a billionaire environmental activist. Yes, and I think I think it, it is interesting to think about people who, you know, celebrity environmental activists because, you know, I think we've kind of drawn out some of the hypocrisy of that. But, again, that's also something that it doesn't – Jane Fonda notwithstanding, and I think, again, I think Jane Fonda is kind of the exception that proves the rule because she is someone who, whose radical commitments have to be taken very seriously because they are something that she has been pursuing for the entirety of her career um, and, at you know, at some personal cost. I, I think it's something that people look at more credulously these days. I mean, if you think that the – the current de facto leader of the global environmental movement is a 17-year-old girl from Sweden who was pulled basically from, from anonymity. That's a very stark contrast to, to celebrity claims on environmental leadership that were sort of predominating in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I myself have written about that that kind of celebrity environmentalism of the 90s and how it was really effective. You know, Jacques Cousteau was a celebrity environmentalist and he was crucial in in kind of generating the, the goodwill that led to the protection of, of the Antarctic. Um, so there's there's all of those kind of examples of celebrities, I, I think, doing quite productive work, but also in an environment – the environment, I guess, allowed them to do that, the political environment, because – you know, this environmentalism isn't based around challenging capital. You know, it's okay for rich people to kind of come in and and be these activists because there's no 
you know, I guess in the mainstream, there's no contradiction, I suppose, between getting rich to be getting extremely rich and and also championing the environment, you know, because in, in this kind of political construction, as we've said, Chloe, capital, you know, economics and environmental protection aren't mutually exclusive. They they can work together. Yeah. And I also, also I think that in, you know, it's a 90s environmentalism it's 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 extremely individualized and personalized i mean we talked before about that 100 to 200 million people who were assembled on earth day but i think that that's very different to the sort of collective protest that we've seen a resurgence of in recent years where that was regarded as you know that was really 100 or 200 million individuals it wasn't a movement as such and this was also a time when a lot of environmental action was really put upon the individual so you know plant a tree save some save some carbon emissions or you know don't use actually no it's probably pre pre um pre keep cup but you know take responsibility for for disposing and recycling of of um waste products appropriately yeah totally and that's you know that's captain planet kind of embodied like you can be a planeteer too you have you get better at recycling you get better at cleaning up pollution and kind of being nice and working in this team and and collectively we can kind of we can fix everything but it's really about what you as an individual do it's about how you kind of modify your behavior and and as long as everybody kind of behaves that way we'll be okay and we can push the the real baddies the real kind of evil um comic book villains we can defeat them by by just doing the right thing and behaving correctly and and cleaning up after ourselves look i that's something that you you alluded to in the last installment. And I've got to say, the the villains in Captain Planet they're they're pretty ludicrous. They're almost I mean most of them are kind of if they're not human, they're kind of extra human in a way. Yeah, yeah, totally. My my absolute favourite is 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 non human, and his his name is Duke Nukem, which I had forgotten, which I think is amazing. But he has been like he's been uh, mutated, I guess, by by nuclear. Um, fallout or waste I'm not I can't exactly remember how it happens but he's this kind of like big enormous Hulk-like radioactive character and and he is one of the villains you know another one is an evil robot um so they're not human you know they're not like us they're not kind of rational beings they're just set on destroying the planet you know Duke Nukem is is aims to turn the world into a radioactive wasteland because he kind of feeds off radioactive waste and he wants to turn everybody into radioactive mutants. So it's just kind of, they're just outright evil. You know, there's no redemption for these characters and they kind of sit outside the the system, I suppose. Yeah. And it's so, you know, really it's a way of thinking about, thinking about the environment and threats to the environment as threats from outside. There is no countenancing that actually we are the bad guys here. That, that character of Duke Nukem brings to mind what I want to talk about in the second part of this instalment and to bring this discussion together, and that's the threat of nuclear fallout and the damage that could be wrought to the environment by, by a nuclear accident or by nuclear testing in the 1990s. So we've spoken before about how the 1990s opened as it was kind of promising a decade of peace. And that was sort of intimately tied up with the end of the threat of nuclear war between the USSR and the USA. So there were really great hopes at the beginning of the 1990s for nuclear disarmament. 
Yeah, they absolutely were. I think, you know, as you said, it's this kind of hope for peace, the, the threat of all out nuclear war and kind of nuclear annihilation is, is supposedly gone. But the weapons remain. So there's concern about what happens to the weapons, about who's looking after them. And so the fear shifts, I guess, to kind of accidental nuclear fallout. So so from those weapons, get, you know, falling into the wrong hands or whatever, but also for, for accidents like Chernobyl, which is 86. So, you know, it's not that far away, I suppose, in, in popular memory. But I, I think, you know, closer to home, that, that fear is, is pretty real because despite the promise of the of the end of this kind of threat the french are still doing nuclear testing in the pacific in the middle of the decade you know in 1995 they're still blowing up um, nuclear bombs at Mororoa atoll which is which pretty close to us yeah and i think that it's an interesting example i mean partly because i have i have extremely vivid memories of being 8 years old and hearing about the the french nuclear tests at Mororoa atoll and being absolutely terrified out of my skin, having no, you know, no understanding or ability to kind of reconcile that. And also, I suppose, you know, because I was also kind of laboring under the assumptions that nuclear weapons might turn us all into Duke Nukem style, um, yellow radioactive beings that wear Hawaiian shirts. I think this is a really interesting example. So this issue of French nuclear testing, because it kind of ties together some of the themes that we've talked about in this series. One of those, of course, is the is the end of the Cold War and, you know, kind of the long shadow that the Cold War cast over the 1990s, whether politicians and policymakers liked or not. The other is this is this is a, this is an example that shows how I think history continued into the 1990s, because these French nuclear tests, these were coming at the end of a long history of European powers using the Southern Hemisphere as basically a testing ground for nuclear weapons. We have, of course, the very famous example in Australia of Maralinga, where the British were encouraged to test nuclear weapons in South Australia by the Menzies government in the 1950s. And this is a story of, you know, of imperialism, of late imperialism, of gross negligence and really contempt for for human life, especially the life of the lives of Aboriginal people who lived in, in this case, in the area in and around Maralinga. Yeah, and uh, the French are, of course, doing the same in the Pacific. You know, there's a total disregard for the health of the people who, who inhabit those atolls that, you know, they, they're blowing up or they're doing atmospheric testing above. Um, and, and I think the French play a particular role in the Australian imagination of the 1990s. You know, Chloe, as you say, you know, you're recalling the kind of terror. And I remember having this kind of understanding that the French were were bad guys like they were doing bad stuff really close to us um and it was our job that australia had to play this role in trying to stop them from doing it yeah which we kind yeah, of did absolutely and well well we did and i think that's it's interesting that you called say that the french are kind of the bad guys in this situation because it was you know it was it was kind of a they're kind of flipping the bird to, you know, this informal moratorium on nuclear weapons that had been in place since the early 1990s and that very much came out of the out of the end of the Cold War. And they also it also endangered the hopes for a comprehensive ban on testing, which did come through in 1996. And yes, I think you're right to say that Australia did take kind of a leadership role. And it's it's really interesting. This is really interesting in context of what we've said before about partisan politics in Australia in the 1990s. So there was a delegation of South of representatives of South Pacific nations. And I think that, you know, it's really important that we don't underrate the contribution of smaller South Pacific nations to this because it's very easy to, I think, 
assumed that Australia and New Zealand were the only the only countries that really stood up in protest when really it was a kind of, I think, a strategic deployment of their power as Western Anglophone nations. But yeah, they sent a, a delegation to, to Paris, which was led by Gareth Evans, the Labour minister, um, somewhat controversial figure. We'll link to a few few pieces in the show notes. He went to Paris to complain. It And ASEAN, which was one of those bodies that Paul Keating helped to set up, also made representations to France. So this is something that we can see as part of Paul Keating's agenda, which we've spoken about before, to make Australia an Asian nation. But it's also interesting because there was the kind of bipartisan agreement on the need to really challenge the French on these nuclear tests. So early on in the piece, while this was all sort of bubbling up in 1995, John Howard, who was the opposition leader at the time, he actually accused the Paul Keating of not going hard enough. And I think there's kind of there's a kind of a rich there's a rich irony in John Howard who very explicitly positioned himself as the heir of Robert Menzies who was you know I guess who was very much um for want of a better word and for want of being able to think of a better word he was he kind of positioned himself as a, as a British lapdog he was the person who invited the British in to conduct nuclear tests in the 1950s so John Howard, whose idol was Menzies, he stood up to this this French nuclear testing as a matter of Australian patriotism. So it kind of it kind of became this issue on which both political parties could kind of converge, and there was this weird moment of bipartisan agreement, which I think has had has had ramifications ever since. Yeah, and I, I mean, do you think it's fair to say that the the issue of of nuclear weapons, at least, did kind of reach an, an end point? In Australia, with that kind of bipartisan consensus, I, you know, I think that, I think that this is, the first thing I'll say here is that I think it's a real shame that the 1990s hasn't been taken up as a subject of serious historical study to any great extent as yet, because I think that this is, you know, really something that people should be turning their attention to. So anything I say is very much kind of high. It's a, it's a hypothesis. It's not the product of, you know. Of, of extensive research, but I think that it kind of in Australia, nuclear nuclear weapons and nuclear power are they're very much tied together, and I think that's probably because we don't have you know much of a history of our own development of a development of nuclear power or nuclear weapons, and we have very much been the object of other other nations' nuclear aspirations. And while I've spoken about this bipartisan moment where, you know, Australia utterly, on both sides of Parliament, utterly rejected the French nuclear test, Australia also does have a long history of anti-nuclear protest. And this is going right back to, you know, to protest against, like, these very secretive arrangements that were going on in South Australia and that were kind of shrouded in secrecy for years. Um, but I think I think it's significant in that after 1995, you, I, I wouldn't say that there has ever been... There's been serious discussion of nuclear power in Australia, but I wouldn't say that there's ever been anything close to movement or anything coming close to, you know, the establishment of nuclear power in Australia. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I suppose the, the exception to that is our involvement in uranium mining and the export of uranium, which of course is crucial to nuclear power. Um, but we, I guess, have kind of 
dodged, largely dodged those discussions. There, have, there of course, has been enormous controversy over, over uranium mining from a, from a number of perspectives. But in terms, I think you're right, in terms of nuclear power, actually developing a nuclear power industry in Australia, that just never seems to have gotten any traction. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair to say. And it's, it's interesting, um, having grown up in South Australia, which is, of course, one of the states that has some of the largest uranium deposits in the world, this is an issue that periodically comes up. And it's also something that comes up, especially in relation to economic decline, you know, this perceived economic decline. And, you know, there's this idea, I think where people do talk about nuclear power as an option for Australia, and, you know, even this is extending into questions around uranium exports, it's always tied up with the economy. And this perception that nuclear will be our salvation in some way yeah which which maybe you know is another I, I suppose lasting legacy of that you know quintessentially 1990s liberal environmentalism that we've been talking about it's interesting to reflect on those debates because you know so we we have this moment of public anger which was very effective in 1995 because the french did stop those nuclear tests and the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was adopted by the UN, but like most of these treaties, was never ratified. So it was effective in the sense that it stopped what was happening and it kind of made nuclear kind of verboten in serious Australian public discourse. But what we do see is that by the 2000s, nuclear, far from being kind of this horrifying, you know, this horrifying issue of environmental degradation was offered up as kind of a way of resolving this apparent deadlock between the environment and and the economy. You know, because weirdly people would argue that nuclear was environmentally friendly and profitable. Yeah, and I guess that's always been the aim of that kind of um, liberal environmentalism again of the 1990s, that we can find a rational solution where you know, everybody is satisfied and the system continues as it is. And I think that's probably the lasting legacy that we live with. And, and it's, it is the reason that we don't have action on climate change because action on climate change requires totally rethinking that way of looking at environmentalism and, and global politics. And I think this is probably this is possibly one of those points at which we can see that perhaps the long 1990s have finally ended. I think I spoke in the first instalment about how no one in the 1990s anticipated the rise, you know, the inexorable rise of ever more efficient renewables and ever cheaper renewables. And that's kind of, I think, been a breaking, that's been, that's been a, a more effective way of potentially breaking the deadlock between you know this question of do we save the environment or do we save the economy um but at the same time you know perhaps the 90s also hasn't ended because we're still seeing we're still seeing our politics haunted by these kind of technocratic delusions of people like al gore yeah and um on that note i I think we probably have to leave it there chloe but we will of course come back to a lot of the themes that we've covered in this episode, um, the things of the 1990s that we are still haunted by, um, not the least of which I think is 90s liberalism. And when we come back in our next episode, we will be covering an aspect of that when we look at the liberal feminism of the 1990s and the rise of girl power. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. 
Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.